Hello and welcome to the podcast, What I Wish I Knew as an NQT slash ECT, with me, Jeremy Crook. This is a show where my guests and I will share with you our experiences, both good and bad, of life as an NQT. Today, we're going to be discussing special needs, which was something I knew very little about when I started teaching. We're lucky enough to be joined by two Senkos, Nikki Van Gallis and Rachel Marlowe. Nikki never meant to become a teacher, but everything she did kept bringing her back to the profession. She did various jobs before training, but she knew that she wanted something that had meaning and purpose from her job. And very soon after stepping foot inside a classroom during her volunteer work, she realised that was where she wanted to be. Was Rachel the same? No, not at all. She used to work in the Houses of Parliament Visitor Services team. But she realised that she much preferred the time she spent with the children on school visits rather than the time spent with MPs. So after a quick three-month trip to Costa Rica, where she volunteered in a school in the middle of nowhere, she returned to England and started her skit training. Nikki, Rachel, thank you for talking with me today. What I'd like to start with is a brief resume of your careers to date. As I'm often asked, how do you get to be a Senko? And there is no one better than the pair of you to tell us. Nikki, over to you. Okay, so um, I qualified back in 2008 um, and I did four years teaching at a school in Basildon. And then I moved to my current school, which is in Tathlin-on-Sea. Um, and from there, basically, I'd always spoken with the Senko at the time and said, you know, it's something that I'm really interested in um, and just basically tried to see what she was doing, see the kind of things that she was advising us to do and always trying to just be the best practitioner that I could within the classroom. Um, and then she decided to move on a few years later and the opportunity came up to apply for the role. And um the head teacher sort of knew my intentions already and the rest was history, shall we say. You have to qualify within three years, I think it is, as the um, you have to complete the National Award for Senko accreditation, um, which I will say to anybody that does want to become a Senko, it's it's hard work. There's no two ways about it. And I'm sure Rachel would agree with me on that. Yeah, one. I would absolutely agree with that. So what about you then, Rachel? What are, Because this is fascinating. It houses a parliament. Crikey. And you've come into being um, so, teaching. So I, I did a master's degree that I didn't know what to do with. Um, and I think at the time I was the only person in the country to have it. Um, so I did an MA in sociology of nation citizenship and human rights, which wow. at the end of it, I didn't know what to do. Uh, but ah. luckily got a job at the Houses of Parliament in the visitor services team. Um, and Became and knew very little about politics really, um, and became a tour guide there. And I loved, I loved the job. I loved meeting lots of different people. But the best thing was definitely the school visits. So I soon became known for tailoring my tours to a uh, kind of the gross facts or you know the funny facts that I knew would appeal to school groups. Have you, have you got a gross fact for us now? And my favourite one was around the Great Stink and obviously the Houses of Parliament being evacuated because it was too smelly for the politicians. And the children thought that was amazing. So um, I tailored my tours to that sort of thing, really. Um, but I soon realised that that was what I was enjoying doing um, and the House of Parliament weren't really for me. 
So um, I decided to take a little break. I went over to Costa Rica for three months and volunteered at a school in a tiny little village teaching English and was completely out of my depth. 40 children in a classroom, all different ages, no experience of teaching. And they were just running around the classroom and I really didn't know what to do. But I came back and did my teacher training anyway uh, and did the skip course and then went on to teach at an amazing school in Rayleigh with a brilliant NQT mentor, lots of opportunities um, and was encouraged to kind of move forward in terms of career development. So went over to another school and became a school improvement leader, which was a great challenge. Um, and that school then amalgamated and both Senkos from the infant school and junior school didn't want the role. Um, so I took that on, uh, became assistant head there um, and have done a couple of moves of school since, uh, but have stuck to SEN um, and I'm currently at Senko in a school in Rayleigh and absolutely love it. That's that's what comes over from both of you. I'm quite concerned at the moment about the teaching profession because uh, I'm still in schools an awful lot. I'm, I'm Teachers are whacked out. They're exhausted. Mm -hmm. The idea of thinking maybe everything would get back to normal quite quickly just hasn't been the case. I was speaking to a year two teacher the other day and she said, I'm shattered. She said the children, they've, they've, they've lost a year academically, but that isn't a great concern, but they've lost a year socially. Yeah. And she said, that's the big concern that... that where I'd normally expect a year two class to be in September, they're like a reception class. And uh, she said, the struggle I'm having and, and, and the difficulty trying to accelerate the, the academic side is, is almost impossible because socially they're so far away. Is that, is that something you've noticed in your own schools? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny enough, it's a discussion that I've had with several members of staff over recent weeks because you know, we've had an awful lot of referrals coming through recently to our department. Rachel, I don't know if it's the same for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really is. And um, it's it's very much the case of trying to almost reassure the teachers that actually, you know, this this is not just a school problem. You know, this is this from mm. what I'm hearing, this is across many, many schools across the country and probably beyond internationally, I'd imagine for any schools that are impacted by lockdown. Um and yeah, I'd say they've they've almost missed those key developmental stages. I think when you look at the year sixes, it would be fair to say that the behaviour, the kind of emotional needs that they're presenting with at the moment are very much equivalent of what you'd see sort of at the end of the year four, beginning of year five. Um, mm. But we're very mindful, those children in particular are going to secondary school in, in, in September. And you you think, oh my goodness, how on earth are we going to get those children ready for that but at the same time you don't want to rush them because they're still children they're still young children that are at primary school so that's that's a constant balance and I think it's become a huge balancing act this year that is probably going to be there for several years to come yet so yeah I, I think probably that this idea of getting them socially ready and emotionally ready is is way way more important than getting them academically ready because we all know academically, if if you've got a child eager to learn, you can race along, can't you? But if you've got children who are traumatised and, and anxious about this, that or the other and or are finding it hard to get on with their peers, trying to get them focused on their learning is actually quite a challenge. Absolutely. And it's, it's the wider family traumas and the family mm. stresses, you know, mm. the children may have sort of bounded through the doors on that first day back but you could see just how many parents were 
literally afraid of sending their children back to school because obviously the message for so long had been it's not safe and then yeah. suddenly oh you're all back together again and mm. uh, I, I think that's you know I think it's a real key thing to know that it's I, I very much believe in a holistic thing and it's it you know it's affected the families as well so part of our role more than ever before has been supporting the families through the pastoral teams through us and those conversations with families to try and help them sort of navigate their way through this as well yeah good is that what you've found Rachel in your school absolutely and I was going to say that's a conversation I've been having with my leadership team this week about what else can we be doing to support families as a whole because we're seeing such kind of increasing levels of anxiety from parents from children um and we can't deal with each child individually in terms of one-to-one counselling and things that parents are asking for. There's just not those services out there. So it's looking at what we can do for the whole school community at the moment. And also, particularly with our new intake, I think if you're an NQT in early years this year, you're probably, <laughs> if you'll find it particularly tricky, then you're not alone. It is a very different year this year. Um, so be gentle with yourself if you're in early years, I think, and yeah, just give absolutely. the children the time they need. Absolutely. We know both of you have done other things before coming teachers, but since you've been in teaching, I know, Rachel, you just said, you know, that that the bit you love most of all was being with the children. So you never regretted it? No, I've absolutely, I've never looked back. I'm really pleased that I did other things first because, you know, I think all of those life experiences were really good for me and I, I had a lot of fun along the way as well. Um, but now I just can't imagine doing anything else because every day is different from the moment I'm on the gate greeting the children in the morning they come through with you know most of the time come through with a lovely greeting and they're they're excited to see you because school is their their safe place at the moment Mm. when the world seems so uncertain um and just the whole day whizzes by from the moment you get there to the moment you leave and those relationships you form and those things you just don't forget really um I know when I come home I bore my husband with all my stories from the day and I, <laughs> I don't, should I don't hope think, so too I don't think anyone else really understands which is why it's so nice to be able to talk to Nikki <laughs> because I know she does you got anything to add there Nikki yeah I I'd say the only time I ever regret it is probably that moment that you get the Ofsted call and you go oh <laughs> that sinking feeling in your stomach. Now, I think when I was an NQT, I'd had Ofsted in my training year at my training school. Then we had an Ofsted inspection the first year that I was in uh, qualified. And then we had them return the second year. And then I changed schools and we had Ofsted then as well. And I was like, eh, it's following me around wherever I go. So, you know, four years the thought of having Ofsted inspections I, I sort of grew to dislike them quite quickly but um I think yeah it's a shame that isn't it, it it's a shame that we feel sorry it's a shame that we feel this great weight of an inspection because I always knew my school was going to be comfortably good enough in inspections and, yeah. and therefore I tried to shield as much as I could my staff from this endless draining, are they going to come this week, next week, next month type perception. But um, but you still carry it around, even though I was utterly confident my schools would always be fine, in fact, would do very well. Uh it's still, it still it does still weigh you down, and it's so unnecessarily onerous, and the accountability stakes are so high, and and it's just not necessary. 
And and crikey, it's frustrating. And before I start <laughs> ranting, let's move on. Because let's, <laughs> 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 let's move on to um, just, just thinking about increased stresses and strains. What's your one bit of advice at the moment? Not your one bit of advice for an NQT with SEN, but um, what's your one bit of advice at the moment where you'd say, uh, well, just to cope with this, how do you cope? Um, I think it's really important to make time for yourself. I, I know it sounds so cliche, but I'm, I genuinely am terrible at it. I'm always sort of trying to do things to help other people because for me that that's cathartic in itself. But mm. I actually have to now physically book time on the calendar for me. <laughs> um, yeah, good. Whether that's I'm just going to go and have a snooze for an hour or I'm going to go and spend some time and take the dogs out for a walk or I might go and have um, like a hair appointment or something. I, I really need to make sure that I make that time because the work can become all consuming mm. and you you have to have that separate balance. And, you know, I've I've had a couple of amazing mentors over the year and they've always said to me, if you're running on empty, you can't give what you need to those children who need it the most. Um so, you know, you do sometimes have to have people that will stop you and say, right, take a minute, step back. Yeah, even your husband, even your husband. Absolutely. And We're I'm going out tonight, to darling. I don't care if you've marked all the books or not. We're still going out. So yes. that's a good bit of advice. Rachel, have you got a little? I mean, I am the worst possible person to ask about this, if, if I'm entirely honest, um, because my husband has told me off lots of times. Oh, um, good man. Go, go, go. <laughs> but for me, it's really about, it's been about thinking what's actually going to make the difference. I know as an NQT and in the early years of my teaching, I wanted to do absolutely everything. I wanted every lesson to be all singing and dancing. And not that I don't think every lesson should be you know, excited and engaging for children. But it was about taking a step back. And actually, I found then my teaching style was more relaxed and mm. I was more relaxed and actually the day went much better. So it was about just thinking about what do the children really need me to do as opposed to what am I just going way over the top with? Yeah, what could I do? And and, and we're, we're, we're not very good at that as teachers because you think if I can just do a bit more, they'll get a bit more out of it. Mm. And actually... That's not sustainable, is it, for too long? So tell us about something great, something where you go, whoa, i just got to tell you this because this will make you love teaching like I do. I mean, for me, there have been like those, I've had the horrific Ofsteds, I've had the great Ofsted, and really they don't matter to me one way or the other. No, the good, I'm really pleased. Just say moments. that again, can you? Just say that again so the listeners can hear it. I just kind of want to reassure people, because I know early on in your career, you worry about, well, and on going forward in your career, you worry about it. In my second year of teaching, I had the most diabolical Ofsted observation ever. I was truly awful because um, it wasn't my class. I was teaching a child, decided to tell me all about his uncle being in prison. And really, it just sidetracked my lesson. I couldn't get it back on track because then everyone wanted to share their similar (laughs) experiences. And I just... I realised it. It was meant to be an RE lesson. It didn't go well. Uh, but then I've had the other end of the scale as well. We're like really lovely phrase in an offset inspection, but it doesn't matter. The things for me have been about those kind of individual children, those individual mm. breakthroughs. So in my first teaching school, um, I had a child with autism in my class who was 
generally non-verbal um, and you used to get just little glimmers where she would let you into her world and it was so special and then the day that I was leaving that school she could tell I was emotional and for a child that doesn't normally speak she said to me Miss Bennell, you don't have to go we can have a party for you oh, <laughs> where, wow. where has that come from and it was just one of the and there's been a few children like that that I will I just will never forget really and so yeah. that's what makes it worth it yeah, absolutely. You don't, you just don't forget them, do you? Those no. and those, those snippets of I had a, I had a, an elective mute in my class once, and uh, it sort of occasionally whisper to his best mate, very occasionally. And we got to the end of the year, and and he was by no means verbose, but um, but he'd say, "Where shall I put my book, Mister Crook?" Or you know, is it playtime yet? Mr. Crook. And, mm-hmm. and every time you spoke to me, I was thrilled. Just like you've described there with your ASD girl. It's those are special times. Mm-hmm. Nikki, what, what I bet you've got something just as special. <laughs> um, I think the greatest time, or one of the, I mean, you know, like Rachel said, there there are many, I think, and you know, certainly when you're in the classroom, those those points are really poignant and I think for me um I was working with a lad back when I taught in Basildon and he was exceedingly challenging um you know probably at risk of permanent exclusion to be fair um but you know I worked really hard to build a relationship with him over the course of the year and I think you know you always assume that teachers have to raise their voice or shout or be firm disciplinarians and you know he he knew where the line was but it was also that he knew that I cared about him and mm. that I was interested in him as a human being um, and as a young boy as well, rather than treating him like a much older child, which I think because of the way he behaved, a lot of children kind of almost felt that way about him. But then at the end of the year, when it came to leaving, I thought, oh, then, you know, he'll be glad to get out. It's the summer holidays. And he came up to me and he just went, Miss, I don't want to leave your class. I, I like your class. I don't want to go. And I, you know, I'll be honest, you know, he left and I cried like a baby <laughs> because, you know, you, you do form those attachments with the children because you want them to have a good life. And uh, I think they get under your sting because there's been days where you think I'm I'm losing my mind. And I don't know what else to do with this child. And then when you have them say something like that, you think, oh, you did like being in class. It wasn't so bad. <laughs> and I, I don't realise that. Yeah, that's always the case, isn't it? When you care about the children, they care about you. And they might not always show, show it in in obvious ways, but then you get those little glimpses of things which you know really matters. We've gone into sort of poignant, emotional, we're all going to be crying soon type moments. But, <laughs> so tell us about something funny or odd or something which makes us think, ooh, what about that then? Every day there's something <laughs> or something that you think, am I am I in like a TV show or something? This <laughs> is so <laughs> random. Um, but I think one of the funniest ones for me was um, I used to work in a school that had hearing impaired children. And for those people who don't know of the listeners out there, you have to wear what's called a sound field system. So it's a microphone that sits around your neck and then you have a pack that's attached to your trousers or your waistband, whatever you're wearing. Um, and it's got a mute button on it. Um, but 
obviously you get into full flow of teaching then you realize oh my goodness you know the children have gone out I've only just finished setting up my lesson I've got to run you know I've got to run downstairs quickly have a break you know get a drink say hello to a couple of members of staff and then I came back upstairs like the end of break time went to go and get my class and uh, all the hearing impaired children at where the sound fields were sniggering sniggering hysterically at me (laughs) and I was like why is everybody laughing? What's going on? And one of the children came up to me, Miss, you left your sound field on. We could hear absolutely everything you were doing in the staff room. I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah, I learned from that moment on, mute the sound field. If you work with hearing <laughs> children, mute their sound fields. <laughs> oh, and, and you're, you're definitely not know. alone. You're, de- you're definitely not alone with that because I also worked uh, at a school with uh, pupils with hearing impairment and uh, quite often that would happen and they found teachers going to the toilet hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, no. you can see why. They love it, don't they? Children absolutely <laughs> love it when uh, when the teacher does something that they think they wouldn't expect. So, so let's go to SEND then. What was it that sparked your interest? My interest in SEN, I think, was always making sure that children have an opportunity to be successful no matter what they came from or where their starting points were. Um, you know, it, I, I think when you sit there and you work with the child and you, you find a sweet spot that they are able to make progress in, then, it, you know, it just absolutely fills your day with, with such joy when they get something and you know that you've made a difference to them. Um I, I think as well, you know, it's making sure that we understand that SEND isn't just cognition and learning. It's one of the four broad areas of need. And, you know, when when you have a child um, with physical disabilities as well, um, that can be really quite eye opening to see how much they have to go through in their little lives. And you just want to fight for them. You want to get what they need. And as a SENCO, you get to follow that fight all the way through and it's a tough fight and sometimes you're Mm. you're at tribunals or you might be at mediations and it can be really long before you see the next win but when you get that win it's it can be massive and it can be life-changing for those children because when when a plan is granted it can stay with a child until they're 25 years old and you know you've just possibly change the course of that child's life I love your passion it's just so good (laughs) what about you Rachel I mean for me I think it really started from my very first class that interest in SEN because um when I went into the school everyone was like oh I can't believe they've given you that year group for your first your first year of teaching I can't believe they've given you that class and then it was that child and actually that child was amazing he he was funny he could be really engaged he had an amazing imagination he kept me on my toes absolutely but he was brilliant and then every year there was that child that would be spoken about as that child and I thought actually these are children in masses of potential and we need to come from a different place of kind of understanding rather than judging them as being that child um and so the whole way through I've really focused on forming those relationships with children um and seeing the best in them, um, which obviously you'd hope every teacher does, but it's not always or not always the case. And really working with the children and the families, as Nikki said, to st- sometimes you're just starting on the very journey where parents haven't recognised any need as well. And following that journey the whole way through to getting the provision and support 
that the children need. I know this week my head teacher called me a pit bull, and I took it. As, <laughs> well, I, I he's it right, as, isn't he? Called a dog with a bone, so there must I, be. Some I, dog I, I took it as a compliment <laughs> because I, I it. SEN can be a really frustrating system to work in. There are lots of constraints and there are lots of challenges. So you do need to be a pit bull fighting for these children and representing them. So I just, you see the difference on a day-to-day basis. And some days you feel like you're getting nowhere, but you know it's worth it. Yeah. No, pit bull, good description (laughs) for the pair of you. That's spot on because fighting for the children is what it's all about. And it's not about being awkward, is it? And it's not about being troublesome and all this. I do get tired. I get weary of people who who sort of criticise people with passion, who are fighting for more vulnerable people and uh, and putting yourself out to support those who really need help. Well, there's no greater causes there. So, uh, <laughs> crikey, you've got my admiration, you two, because... Uh, <laughs> I can see just how passionately you do that. So what's the must-know then? What's the absolute must-know? What's the one thing that if you feel, if only I'd known that when I first started teaching, what would it be? Rachel, what would it be? I mean, I, I think when it comes to SCN, it's easy to want to know everything and you never, you never can. And I think the most important thing to remember is that no two children of SEN are the same even if they've got the same diagnosis. So what works for one child won't work for another. And just keep trying. (laughs) Um, It can can, um, be a challenge sometimes, but you will find what works for the individual child. And and when you do, it'll be amazing. Yeah, and and, and what you say is it's not neat. And what works one week, this was the thing I learned as an NQT, what works one week with one child may not work for that child the following week. And then I used yeah. to potter off to my mentor and say, you know, that thing where we sorted it out and it was all brilliant, it stopped <laughs> working. What do I do now? But knowing it's not your fault and knowing that you've got to keep trying and knowing that you'll find something else will work and you can go back to the first thing that works again later and it'll work again. That's where you build up that body of knowledge, isn't it, of what, what to try. So, and definitely going and asking people as well. Um, it, there's no shame in asking for help um, from people who've got more experience or just to try and pull ideas together. I still do. <laughs> yes, every yeah, well, day. I still do. And I've retired. What about you then, Nikki? What's the one thing? Um, I think, you know, obviously I've come in and I've, I very much think, I didn't really understand the purpose of ILPs when I first became a teacher. Um, And what's an ILP? I just don't want an ECT to feel nervous. It's an individual learning plan. They could be called ISPs, IEPs. Different schools call them different things. All one plans as well. All one plans if you're in Essex, absolutely. um, But I think, you know, for me, um, ILPs are like your your ways to show progress with the children and it's really important to make sure that ILPs are achievable you know we talk about them having smart targets but if you think it's like a little stepping stone so what can't they do now that in a term's time I'd like to be able to see them do um but it can't it might not necessarily be cognition and learning it could be that if they're a child who has STMH needs so social emotional mental health that actually they're able to start recognising if they're angry or upset. They might not be able to do anything else at that point, 
but just that recognition of, oh, I know that physical feeling when I start getting angry, that's a step towards helping them to understand their emotions and develop those things. You know, it could be a child that has a physical disability who needs to learn how to type on a keyboard for the first time. And they're not going to learn that skill in, in 12 weeks or 14 weeks, however long the term is. So it's important that NQTs and ECTs know, you know, make it something that's achievable and realistic for the child and for you but understand the assessed plan do review cycle and don't expect results in a week because, mm. you know, sometimes these things need time and teachers, I think quite often, we want to solve everything immediately and you can't always do that. Yeah, we um, do, don't we? Yeah. And uh, the worst thing is we then beat ourselves up that we haven't been able to do it. <laughs> we set ourselves an impossible mission and, and then, and then God, give ourselves such a hard time. Why couldn't they do it? What should I have done better when actually you and the child have done everything they could? And maybe the ambition was just a little high, but much better to have a high ambition, isn't it? And then and then bring it down a little bit because you've just been a bit optimistic than have too little ambition. But then don't make anyone feel bad about missing what you hoped for because we're human beings. I like one of you said earlier, you know, these are just children, for goodness sake, and we've got to... We've got to respect the fact they're children, haven't we, and nurture them and help them and support them. Right, anything else either of you want to say? Because you've probably got another 10 things to say, but you can't say 10 because otherwise any ECTs listening will go, oh, my brain's already full and now they've given me too many. So a maximum of one other thing if you want to, and if you don't, that's fine. I mean, for me, for me, the other big thing would be recognising your own frame of reference. So sometimes these children have had experiences that we haven't got a clue how it must feel to be experiencing those things. So recognise your own frame of reference. Don't judge yourself for your frame of reference, but just be aware of it when you're working with families. And those families of SEN children, they can be some of your most challenging families because they have faced some of the biggest challenges. Mm. So on a daily basis, they will be up against it in terms of trying to get um, referrals and appointments and see the right professionals so sometimes for them it feels like every day is a battle mm. and it's them knowing that you're in that battle with them that you're supporting them through it um, and really coming alongside them and understanding the families that you're working with because ultimately you all want the best for the child. Yeah that that's so important I used to say when parents used to come in and see me when I was ahead when they were really cross I used to say we're on the same team. Yeah. We're, we're, it's not me v you. It's us together doing the best we can do for your child. So if we work together, we can achieve a lot and way more than if we're sort of arguing about the best way forward. So let's agree the way forward and then mm. do it together and then we can really make a difference. Well, often my friend said to me once, she said, when you first find out that you're going to have a baby and you get that pregnancy test mm -hmm. you have an idea in your mind of what that child's life is going to look like and quite often <laughs> life doesn't plan out for those children the way you hope and often with SEND children in particular it it's it's a real struggle for our parents but I'll always say to the parents you know these are your babies at the end of the day and we just want what's best for them and we will do what we can to help you yeah well what a what a great place to end that is because I know I know probably 
that one phrase, we will do our best to help you, sort of sums up in a nutshell what you both think and and every Senko I've ever met, that's what they think. We're just <laughs> going to do everything we can to help you. They don't particularly have an ideology where they say we've got to do it like this. They just want to help people achieve the most for their child and for the child to achieve as much as they can as well. And and that's glorious. Crikey, that's glorious. So, Nikki, Rachel, thank you so much for talking to me. I've really enjoyed it. And I know the listeners will have found lots to make them think. You, The things you've said just now really remind me of something that the inspirational author and therapist Shannon L. Alder wrote. She's someone, you know, who, who writes about vulnerabilities and supports people with, with various aspects of their life. And she said, one of the most important things you can do on this earth is to let people know they are not alone. And, and that's just what you've both said, isn't it? We're here with you, not a little bit to the side here. We're with you and we're going to do as much as we can because vulnerable children often feel alone as well, don't they? But but the way we support them and, go, cool, I wouldn't mind having you two on my side. That would be awesome. And uh, it reminded me of uh, the book Atonement, you know, the novel Atonement from which they made that award-winning film with uh, various people whose name I can't remember. But the author of the book Atonement was Ian McEwan. And he said, a person is, among all else, a material thing, easily torn and not easily mended. And, and really, that sort of sums up a Senko for me, because what you're doing is trying to make sure the children never get torn. Or if they've been torn, they don't get torn anymore. And then you're there with your bit of sellotape, aren't you? Slowly piecing them back together so that so that they end up as a whole person again. And, and when they leave your care, they're more content and comfortable in their own skin and much more aware of what they can do. And uh, crikey, you're uh, you're doing a great job, you two. So, uh, so thank you for sparing the time to talk to me because we can make a difference, can't we? And, and people have only got to listen to you two talk to know just how powerfully you can make a difference. So, wow, what a great place to end that is. Teaching's a tough job, but never forget the positive impact you have every single day on so many young lives and, of course, their families. So, all you teachers out there, what now? What's the one small thing that you will do that will make a difference to your teaching and a difference to the success of your pupils? Because remember, successful teachers are made one small step at a time and don't let anybody tell you any different. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please leave a review and share it with your friends. I love getting feedback and I'm very keen to know what you'd like us to discuss in future podcasts. We will, of course, keep you updated on what's to come on Twitter at WhatNQT. So I look forward to joining you next time for a chat with one or more outstanding teachers. I think this double header has worked particularly well. So thank you, Nikki and Rachel, again for that. Until then, I'm Jeremy Crook, and this has been the latest podcast from What I Wish I Knew as an NQT slash ECT. (laughs) 